and welcome to episode 11 of the Cinema Podcast, and I'm really excited to announce that I've been brought into a really great podcast family, uh, this network, and I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Crash Palace on Twitter at Crash Palace, and Misery Loves Garlic Bread at Misery Bread, and our True Crime Podcast at Our True Crime Pod, Where the Scary Things Are at Scary Horror Cast, True Crime Real Time at True Crime RT Pod and the UFO Chronicles at UFO Chronicles UK. So check them out on Twitter. And, and again, I am very grateful to be brought into this network. I wanted to build off of episode eight in which we were talking about remakes and, and the cynical uh, attitude that is usually met with remakes. And, and one of the most important things I think that came out of that podcast was the concept of the time and era in which a film is made. And sometimes that does not translate or cross over well into a remake. Sometimes it does, but it depends on the timing of a film's success as well, too. Would Jaws have been as successful in 1985 instead of 75? When you look at the King Kong remake of 1976, did it really work? I I mean, it had a lot of cheesy elements to it. And overall, for the bicentennial era and and the Twin Towers and things like that, the the film was a hit. But was it really comparable to to the impact of of the first film? And, And the reason why the original Kong did so well in 1933 was because it was released smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. It's proven that scary films, horror films do better at the box office during bad economic times. And we could even look at that, for example, as part of the reason for the wild success of the 1979 film, The Amityville Horror, versus the success of, of its 2005 remake uh, all those years later. And and while the remake did make money and, and it did well and, and it said that it was taking a, a whole different stance toward the story and whether you believe that story or not is, is totally up to you. Uh, the fact is, is that the Amityville remake uh, was a product of its time as well, too. And we're, we'll be discussing that when I get to the Amityville films because context is key here. So the the film series that I wanted to look at today, and again, cinema is not film reviews, but rather looking at the impact of cynicism on the industry and, and entertainment. I want to look at the success and also lack of success for the Friday the 13th series. Because this is a film series that really underscores the importance of timing and and release and and the context of history around its box office and and video success. Now, a lot of people have have tried to trace back the origin of of the slasher movie. And I remember it was Roger Ebert who I believe coined the phrase, the the dead teenager movie. He, He was able to encapsulate all these kind of slasher movies. And and we're going back, of course, to uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and and Last House on the Left and and those kind of things. And and he applied this also to Jaws 2. It was Roger Ebert, I believe, who who credited Jaws 2 with with actually being a slasher movie. And when you think about it, you you have all the elements of a slasher there. While you don't have a humanoid uh, stalking kind of murder, you have this killer shark whose primary target throughout the film are pretty randy and horny teenagers. I mean, when you think about Jaws 2, the whole crux of the movie is about Chief Brody going out to rescue these kids who run afoul of the shark out in the open ocean. And what were these kids trying to do? Well, well, they were going out to party. 
and what happened to Tina and Ed just before they got it on. And, and that is, of course, the, the shark interrupted anything. It was the ultimate uh, fish cock block, if, if you will. Jaws 2 really gave the designer kind of sheen to, to killing off teens. It wasn't a grainy B-movie or a low-budget movie that, that played part of a double bill at a drive-in. I, I mean, this was a widescreen Panavision $50 million budgeted motion picture and a sequel to the all-time highest-grossing motion picture at that time. So while there's really no nudity, the, the underlying theme of, of have sex and die was really there and it was in the form of, of that killer great white shark off of Amity. The original 1978 Halloween kind of fine-tuned the subgenres as Michael Myers, you know, the shape, whatever you want to call him, stepped out of the shadows to to come after Haddonfield and and Jamie Lee Curtis. And and as we know it, it hasn't stopped. They're, they're filming two more. The political and social context of this film cannot be ignored and it will pave the way for the success of a number of rip-offs. However, it will be Friday the 13th, and that is the central series that I'm talking about in this podcast, that'll become the front runner. It will become the, the spin-off kind of uh, comparable parallel series to the Halloween series. When Steve Miner and, and Sean Cunningham set out to make a quick ripoff of Halloween, they had no idea that they would unleash one of the most enduring franchises ever. Even its star and, and only real celebrity name, Betsy Palmer, I, I remember reading interviews with her and, and she dismissed the film as, as trash. She said she only took the role of Mrs. Voorhees to, to get a new car. And, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing her when she said something along the line after reading the script, like, who's going to come and see this shit? Boy, I, I know she lived long enough to see how wrong she was with that. Friday the 13th gets away with a number of cheats. And, and that's because of its clever manufacturing. And, and to understand why the original one did so well and, and why fans turned an indifferent shoulder to the really expensive 2008 remake, well, the horror viewer needs to, to look at the time surrounding the release of the film. And, and I talked about this with Ghostbusters. I mean, the original Ghostbusters 84 was released at the height of the Reagan 80s. I mean, Reagan was just about to peak in popularity. And, and, and the 80s were running great. We were coming out of a recession and everybody was just in a fucking good mood. So Ghostbusters tapped into that. It's 2016 quote unquote remake, which is really more of a repackaging. And if you don't know what that is, listen to episode eight. However, that really didn't do anything and, and it didn't tap into anything. And, and the historical context around the 2016 remake really contributes to the film's failure in addition to the fact that, that the movie just really wasn't funny. I want you to think about the time that the original Friday the 13th was made. So it's it's 1980 and, and the whole liberal 70s and Watergate and economic turmoil in Vietnam has left our country scarred and completely cynical. We're, we're coming out of this kind of really crappy time and, and think about it, even still on the heels of the JFK, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy assassinations, it, the, the country is simply not in a great mood. And Jaws capitalized on this concept, folks. While Jaws, I don't really consider a horror film in, in the true sense of the genre, the, this, this shark movie is really an economic film. I mean, Jaws is all about economics. The real bad guy in Jaws is Mayor Vaughn. It isn't the shark that's really doing anything bad. It's the mayor trying to protect the town 
from economic ruin and and really to what extent where he's willing to t- roll the dice and, and gamble on people's lives to save a few summer dollars. I mean, that's the real bad guy. And audiences could tap into that and be like, yeah, man, the government screws us. They just came out of Watergate. They saw what Nixon was pulling with his dirty tricks and the plumbers and, and everything else. And we have Gerald Ford who comes in and then pardons Nixon and everybody goes, what? You can just do that? And, and this guy gets away w- with it? So with slashers like Halloween and and Friday the 13th, the fear is the killer. Sex is the fuel of the killing engine. But economics are non-existent in the themes of the slasher films. You you don't see Friday the 13th being made uh, to keep the the camp killings quiet to to save the economic integrity of of Camp Crystal Lake. It's a very simple premise. Promiscuous teens show up. They party, they get naked, they have sex, and they pay for their crime. And and we were looking for some kind of retribution at this time. And we were coming out of the free love era of the 60s. And then the Manson killings kind of put a literal screaming halt on the hippie movement and the peace and love and free sex movement. So things were, were swinging back. And the slasher film through Halloween and Friday the 13th caught this and cynically ran with it. So let, let's go back to 1980 and, and really start to look at this film franchise in, in context. And Ronald Reagan was just elected president in 1980 and, and, and ushering in what many call the, the American renewal, the era of American renewal. And, and Jimmy Carter, we saw the Jimmy Carter years as really depressing and, and the word malaise was attached to them. And we had high fuel prices and gas lines. And in the United States, we, we were held by the balls in Iran with, with the 52 American hostages being taken and, and being held there for over 400 days. And, and the last half of Carter's miserable term of president was overshadowed by this hostage crisis. We looked weak. We couldn't even rescue our own hostages at this time. There was a botched attempt to rescue them and and planes blew up in the desert. We had Russia in Afghanistan and and they refused to leave. And our only recourse was we are not going to the Olympics that year. And 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 we were really a laughing stock. So Ronald Reagan was coming in as as you know his B-movie sheriff man, and there is a new sheriff in town, and, and the Russians and the Middle Eastern guys, they they better take notice. And if some of you remember, and hopefully some of you are old enough to remember this, only an hour after Reagan was president, the Iranians released our hostages and Reagan kicked off a decade that will be defined by his presidency. That's why they call it the Reagan 80s. You don't hear the Carter 70s. You don't hear any of that. You don't even hear the Kennedy 60s, but you do hear the Reagan 80s. This is not a political podcast. But the political and social climate of the 1980s cannot be denied. Americans wanted a change at the start of the 80s, and they showed that in the voting booth and at the box office, folks. The heavy-handed horror films of the 1970s, the deep ones, the ones with dark conspiratorial themes, uh, whether it's The Wicker Man, uh, The Exorcist, or, or even The Stepford Wives, all of that would change into something that allowed them to weave through the new social climate. The late 70s and early 80s saw a revival in entertainment of all things 1950s. So you have this conservative kind of 
of nostalgia. And nostalgia seems to run in like 20 year increments. So it's no coincidence that Stranger Things and It and all of that stuff are tapping into the 80s 20, 30 years after the fact. It seems to go that way. And in the 1980s, people were longing for the 1950s. And and our TV shows reflected this with Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. And there were a number of sitcoms that were throwbacks to the 1950s, you know, that kind of family sitcom style. And and Family Ties was the new Leave it to Beaver with its breakout star, Michael J. Fox. And and he's going to go on in, in a big 1950s revival hit, Back to the Future, which will make him a number one star in this country. And then you throw in Greece. You can even throw in Animal House and the Hollywood Nights, the Wanders, American Graffiti. And, and you really start to get the idea here that, that America was really missing those 1950s and no coincidence why we had a 50s B-movie actor as president. In movie theaters across the country, it was the 1950s meet modern sex appeal. I mean, imagine Laverne and Shirley with just a lot of boobs. So America went through the 60s love decade that gave us the pill and women's liberation and sexual abandon. It's futile to put the genie back into the bottle on something like that. Our music changed, our films changed, and like it or not, sex had moved to the forefront after decades of repression and, and cinematic dick teasing since film first hit the screens. I mean, go research the Hayes Code. So the, the lid was off. The 60s also gave us the opposite reaction to the 50s with the death of, as I had said, JFK and, and Martin Luther King and, and Bobby Kennedy and add to it the civil rights issue that had been simmering since the first African slave was brought to American shores and, and you had quite a contrast going on. All this would show in our popular culture. And while Americans in the 1980s wanted to return to 50s quote unquote family values, they also wanted their titillation but didn't want to be open about it. It's kind of like a wedding. I mean, think about that when you go to a wedding. The parents of the bride are so happy to see their daughter so beautiful on her day. And what they don't want to think about is her night. Believe it or not, even though we have NC-17 today, one of horror's worst enemies was the X rating. It's more worse than any religious agenda. You see, religious zealots have no clue that studios love the press and boycotts that, that just drive more people to the film out of curiosity. I mean, whether it was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, or, or Silent Night, Deadly Night. I, I remember that one as well, too, where I was a kid working at, at a movie theater and people outside protesting it, which just made more people want to come see this thing. Silent Night, Deadly Night would have come and gone with, with hardly a blip on the box office radar if it had just been left alone. And I sometimes wonder if studios deliberately set these people up to be their own little marketing machines and, and useful idiots. Many distributors did not carry an X film to general theaters as, as the rating was reserved for porn films and, and gave off a really negative context for a general release movie. Today, the X pretty much has been replaced by the classier NC-17 rating, but, but it's really the same thing. I mean, the X rating was so powerful that, that George Romero backed off his stance with 1979's Dawn of the Dead and, and made the necessary cuts to bring it down to an R. And the same was done for Dario Argento's Suspiria and, and The Exorcist and, and the original Alien was also cut from an X rating. The original Halloween got away with almost no blood and, and while the nudity by today's standards is nothing, 
it was considered a, a tad racy at the time. I, I remember that. I was a boy when the original Halloween came out and it was the talk of everything. And and the talk made it out to be far more than what it was. I mean, if you listen to people talking about Halloween, it was bloody, it was gross, it was terrifying, and it was all sex. And and I remember one person talking about it like it was basically a softcore porn film. Then when you finally watch it, I, I caught Halloween uh, on HBO. I did not catch it in in theaters um, I remember sitting there going, this is what the big deal was all about. I, why were people all ranting about this film? I think today the original 1978 Halloween film would receive a PG-13 rating. Friday the 13th wanted to give what Halloween did not. While terror was its driving force, the filmmakers wanted to sex and blood up their movie because they felt that audiences were craving and demanding more. It's all about that desensitizing thing, man. Their first smart move was to hire makeup artist and legend Tom Savini, who I say all the time, and I'll say it here on this podcast, give this man an Oscar. Tom Savini has done so much for the horror genre and in many ways redefined it and is a driving force in the look and shape and feel of the original Friday the 13th films. Now I know Tom, I've been to his home and I think he's a lovely man and and a great guy and and most of all he's he's a fucking genius. He's an inventive artist with a wild imagination that, that set the standard for trauma and violent effects and that made Friday the 13th stand out and away from Halloween. So perhaps it's no coincidence that that Tom served in Vietnam and, and he honed his craft there. That meat grinder war diminished the good fight mentality of, of the previous generation and Savini came from a generation caught up fighting a war few could make any sense of. So the cynicism that rose up from the 70s, the late 60s, 70s Vietnam era was already buoyed by the senseless deaths of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Bobby Kennedy. So Savini's work on the original Dawn of the Dead is one studied to this day, and he is one of the few artists along with Rob Boutin and Rick Baker whose work bears its own signature. You can argue that when you see a certain effect, you can say that's a Savini. Savini not only created all of the kill effects, but designed the iconic image of the young hydrocephalic Jason Voorhees in this original Friday the 13th. The ramping up of the sex and the blood and the event of effects, the formula, it it all worked and avoided the X rating by embracing the genre. And here's where it gets really inventive. Friday the 13th gives you its violence in quick, slick flashes and never goes down the torture porn route. It also manages to embrace the conservative moral attitude towards sex in the 1980s. Immorality will deliver bad things. This is so important to the success of this film franchise. So the theme becomes almost righteous in a way. Have wild, uninhibited sex without marriage and die a gruesome death and deserve death because it's the Lord's way of sending you a message. And it works. This attitude towards sex is going to change by the time that the films turn around to a remake. The attitude of teenage sex and the way teenagers were having sex in the 2000s is very different than how it was in the early 1980s. So think about it. The plot is almost always the same. A group of horny, mostly obnoxious teenagers gather in the woods. They they try to reopen Camp Crystal Lake and, and they somehow cross paths with the film's eventual killer. Now, again, in Friday the 13th, it's Mrs. Voorhees. But in the meantime, they, they do drugs, they drink, they get naked, they, they uh, dick tease. They do all of that. They And then they have sex. And when they have sex, 
they pay the price with a double coitus impaling or a machete to the head. The formula tapped into the sexually frustrated subconscious of teen America and made it okay to explore that sexual appetite safely on screen because there was that underlying message that sex was bad. There is almost invariably a final girl, usually the virgin or the socially awkward female of the group who is now the lone survivor. The late Wes Craven will run wild with all of these tropes in his Scream series. Think about it. Almost everything about the Scream series, it, it's all about the 1980s. It's, it's all about those attitudes. And he's going to take all of that in the historical context and successfully transplant it into the late 90s, early 2000s. I want you to think also about the 80s here. I mean, the 80s is, is like a walking contradiction historically. The decade likes to be known for its wild party atmosphere and MTV and cocaine was the designer drug of Hollywood and parties, but the monster, the Jason, Michael, or Freddy, the real monster was AIDS. And it was doing its slow walk, but catching up and it would change the entire American landscape. Between the 80s and present day, AIDS changed the way Americans viewed sex and it would have a tremendous impact reshaping American teenagers and their habits that would be a total context change for the slasher genre. And yet at the same time, the political right touted its fiscal and moral conservative values and a return to that 50s morality and, and, and conservative Christian values. So you have this weird kind of, of, of situation in the 80s with, with two opposite ends of the spectrum headbutting in the middle. So Friday the 13th works on a really simple format. The entire franchise does. Boobs and blood with a moral message. Throw in a good killer people can get behind and you got yourself a franchise. It's kind of like a fucked up haze code. And that's what I referenced earlier. And, and the haze code was, was this set of film standards before the present day rating system. Before G and PG and R and all that stuff. You can show sex as long as the perverts get what's coming to them. So here are a few things that were restricted by the Hayes Code before the regular Motion Picture Association of America guidelines came along. And that is you couldn't show open mouth kissing or lustful embraces or, or sex perversion, whatever that may be. You could not show seduction or rape or abortion. You could not show prostitution and white slavery, nudity, obscenity, profanity. These were really, really strict things. However, you could get close to showing these things as long as the person enacting them got theirs. And that comes flooding back with a vengeance in the 1980s and what was the fuel that really fired the Friday the 13th franchise. The problem for the original Friday the 13th was that they killed off their killer at the end. They, they, they whacked Mrs. Voorhees. She lost her head. And so where do you go after that? Were they really thinking of starting a franchise at the time? I mean, keep in mind, sequel was still technically a dirty word. Jaws 2 really helped Hollywood go, wow, look what we were missing. I mean, think about this when you, when you think about Jaws. Go back to Jaws and, and remember that speech that Matt Hooper gave, that Richard Dreyfuss gave at the table when he started giving the history of shark attacks. And he said, you know, uh, back... Uh, just before people started swimming for recreation. And he uses the phrase, before sharks knew what they were missing. Well, that ironically or coincidentally 
plays into Jaws 2. Jaws 2 was kind of that same situation. It was the sequel that that kind of opened up franchises before Hollywood knew what it was missing and how it could really make a lot of money. Yes, I I said this in in episode eight, there had been sequels before, but creating a franchise was something new to Hollywood. And how they got around this dead villain issue in Friday the 13th was both clever and cynical. And, And it actually made Tom Savini leave the film series for a while in disagreement over the direction of of the way the franchise was going to go. So you can look at, I have uh, an open letter to New Line Cinema that that just may be um, part of my next cinema podcast because I, I created this open letter to New Line Cinema saying how they could really turn the Friday the 13th franchise around in, in the way of not really a remake, but in a true direct sequel that, that would basically be a, a Jason versus Tommy Jarvis spinoff series. And I think it would be box office gold and, and I still stand by it. I mean, I don't know if that classifies as, as cinema for my cinema podcast, C-Y-N-E-M-A, but if it's done correctly, it, it could really be an engaging movie or TV series as well. However, Tom Savini thought it was a real cynical dick move to, to bring Jason Voorhees uh, to the forefront as, as, the, uh, as the killer. And so he left for a little bit. But, but I will say, I mean, Savini's return to the effects department in the final chapter uh, was just fantastic. I mean, look at the effects uh, between Friday the 13th 1 and 4. While, yes, there are some inventive ones, especially in the third one, they're not Savini's. And when Savini returned, the ending to Friday the 13th 4, the final chapter, is just incredible. I remember the audience screaming its guts out uh, when Jason got that machete to the head and then on top of it falls down on the machete that, that pushed through his eyeball. So the time comes for a reboot. The question really comes down to is, is Friday the 13th relevant in, in its theme of have sex and die? I mean... The sexual mores of, of teenagers has changed. I mean, you're, you're regularly now reading articles where millennials are, are holding off on sex. They're not interested in sex. How do you bring this all up to date is really the question. And is it more of a cynical attempt to remake Friday the 13th and versus just kind of allowing it to be a representative of its time? I, I mean, I don't know. I, the the argument also is, I mean, with the failure of, of the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot, uh, I mean, the, there, there was a predominant uh, message of have sex and die in, in, in Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, especially with Amanda Wiss's death. So, I mean, Nancy and Glenn, they, they held off on sex. At least that's what it appears like. And of course, Nancy is the victor in that film and, and rewarded for, for her uh, conservative belief, if, if that's how you want to interpret it. But does that relate to now? Why, aside from the fact that people go, well, it was just a shitty film, which I don't think the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street was a shitty film. You had a really good cast. Um, There's some great special effects in it and all of that. So I don't want to do the Cliff Notes review critique and just simply say that the, the Nightmare remake sucks. Does it really matter? Instead of looking at it as whether these remakes are good or bad, Perhaps maybe a, a better way to look at them is, are they relevant? What do they have to say? And, and an example of that is the uh, Fright Night remake. And I'll be going into that in, in a separate podcast, but the Fright Night remake really has nothing to say, and it's only Fright Night in name only. 
it has nothing to do with the themes of, of the original film. And, and none of the characters really make any sense, especially what they did with Peter Vincent and also what they did with Evil Ed. So it's it's a remake. Yeah, it has some better special effects. It, it definitely has a good cast. There's, there's no doubt there. But does it have anything to say? That's the question. So if you're going to remake Friday the 13th, which they did... What did it have to say? Was it a commentary on, on conservative versus uh, more liberal attitudes? What, was it a comment on its time? And the only thing I can get out of it is, if it is a comment on its time, it's that incessant need of, of the recent remakes of providing some kind of stupid backstory to the villain to quasi-explain their motives. And we saw this in the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween where we have to give a whole backstory to Michael, you know, an abusive family, stripper mom, alcoholic dad, and, and be, you know, forces him to become an animal torturer and all of that stuff. But yet at the same time, doesn't explain the immortality part. I mean, with Jason, I understand what Tom Savini was saying, and that is, look, the kid is dead. How does he suddenly come back? And, and let's look at it this. Um... You know, we have Mrs. Voorhees out doing the killing as retribution for, for the neglect that she blames for her son's death. Mrs. Voorhees dies at the end. Well, then Friday the 13th does well. So technically, Friday the 13th Part 2 is a pretty cynical film because instead of bringing in another killer, a, a mortal killer, they bring in Jason. Well, how did Jason go from this frail hydrocephalic boy uh, who drowned uh, into this monstrous thing, this this behemoth uh, that now walks around killing people. And where was he in, in the first film? And, and Savini just basically said, I call bullshit. This is stupid. Uh, but it worked. For some reason, it worked. And that's because of the zeitgeist. That's because of the time. We were looking for those killers punishing those randy teenagers. And Jason simply fit the bill. What really worked was... By the time the third installment came along, we had an issue that the slasher film had kind of peaked. And go back and, and take a look. I'm sure Wikipedia has a list somewhere of slasher movies. And, and take a look at how many were coming out between 1978 and 1983. So you have Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D. And, and really, from what I understand, is Paramount was going to pull the plug on the franchise even then, starting to see the, the slow decline in box office return. And there was, there was slasher fatigue, yet the movie did well. So with the 3D, the brief 3D revival, which saw, you know, uh, Friday the 13th part three, which I remember seeing that in theaters and thinking the 3D was actually really good. Maybe my memory is mistaken, but it was nowhere near the, the lousy quality level of Jaws 3D, which, which also came out uh, subsequently. So you have... Jaws 3D and Friday the 13th Part 3D, uh, Part 3 and 3D, and then you have Parasite 3D, and then there was that Coming At You, which would have been a great name for a porno 3D, and yet at the same time, all of these things are in flux, and we thought that the slasher film had peaked, but there was still enough audience to make that final chapter, and that final chapter came in, and they really thought that was it, and then that fucker made money. So the only thing that kills the monster, folks, is bad box office. And, and that's a great cynical term to remember. It's a rule of thumb. And they turned around and they did a Friday the 13th 5, which, as many people know, Jason is not the killer. And a lot of people felt really ripped off. And it was kind of that franchise's 
Halloween 3 is really what it was. It was Friday the 13th, but it wasn't. Kind of like Halloween 3 was really never meant to be part of the Halloween franchise. So they went back to basics, just like Halloween will do. And Friday the 13th brought Jason back in the aptly named Jason Lives in Part 6. And it went on till they, they just ran the thing out of steam, much like Halloween did. Halloween made sure to put the return of Michael Myers on the part of Halloween 4, just so you know you're not getting ripped off again, that the killer is back. But then in the remakes, we have Jason, we have a backstory of his mother, and then we go into his lair and, and we find that, you know, Jason had a pretty sordid, sad childhood, but still doesn't explain a lot. How is he immortal? Why did he return from the dead? We we don't know. And really, in the essence of things, we really just shouldn't care. It's kind of like asking, why did the shark pick Amity? Uh, it just did. The remake doesn't really have much more to say other than some very thin backstory plot on Jason. Can audiences today understand what we are seeing on that screen and relate to it on a social context? So this is why I did this podcast on the social and historical context of a film's success. Sometimes remakes just simply come at a bad time and have nothing to say, especially once they're denuded of their of their context, both historically and also socially. Thank you for listening. I'm thinking of doing the next podcast on my open letter to New Line Cinema. Please listen to my fellow podcasters in the network that I mentioned at the start of this. And I look forward to uh, talking with you again. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.